0: This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may include descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. If you follow true crime cases, either current or from the past, I'm sure you've discovered that there are many types of killers. There are spree murderers, mass murderers, school shooters, and more. But what seems to horrify and fascinate us the most are the serial killers. But even more rare than serial killers are child serial killers. Am I talking about serial killers who target children? No. I'm talking about children who are serial killers. You might be unaware that such a thing even existed. But as most things we think we know about the monsters out there, this one is truly chilling. In Once Upon a Crime's next series, I'll be discussing Killer Kids... Young murderers, past and present. First up, we'll discuss the youngest serial killer America has ever known, Jesse Pomeroy, the boy torturer. Jesse Harding Pomeroy was born November 29, 1859, in Charlestown, one of the oldest neighborhoods in Boston, Massachusetts, to Thomas and Ruth Ann Pomeroy. His father was a veteran of the U.S. Civil War. He was the youngest of two children. His brother Charles was two years older. Charlestown was home to the Charlestown Navy Yard, which took up one-eighth of the land and employed many of the local men. Near the Navy Yard, there was an empty plot of land that backed up to the shores of the Charles River. Some of the town's children liked to go out to the low beach ringed by willow trees or the fishing pole or just to explore some place less crowded where they could run and play. The only other playground for the children were the city streets themselves, where most of the youngsters ran freely between alleyways, dilapidated homes, and overgrown yards. Charlestown was connected by a bridge across the Mystic River to Chelsea, where many of the yard and factory workers found cheap housing. It was only a short walk over the bridge from Charlestown to Chelsea. In the years of 1871 and 1872, there was a rash of attacks on young boys in the Chelsea area. The police had their hands full trying to figure out who was responsible for these vicious acts on the most vulnerable of their citizens. In December 1871, William Billy Payne, aged four, was found in a remote shack by two men who heard noises coming from within. They found the boy hanging from his limbs by a rope tied to a wooden beam inside. He had been stripped and beaten. He was too young to provide details to identify his attacker. Tracy Hayden, a seven-year-old from Chelsea, was found even more savagely beaten. He was also tied up and luckily found before he could freeze to death. He had also been stripped and suffered a broken nose, teeth, and a black eye. He was able to tell police that a bigger boy had offered to take him to the circus that was camped near the outskirts of town. Instead, he had lured him to a remote location where he tied him up and tortured him before leaving him for the elements. That spring, Robert Mayer, eight years old, was lured away by a bigger boy with a promise of sweets. As they were walking by a pond, the boy violently pushed the younger boy into it, holding him down as if to drown him. He then pulled him out and hit him over the head. Robert lost consciousness and came to as he was being dragged into an outhouse. He was then gagged, stripped, and tied to a wooden beam. He was able to detail how the boy then began to giggle and dance around him, hurling curse words at him. He forced Robert to repeat the curse words back. When at first Robert refused, having been taught that this was naughty, the boy then began to lash him with a stick. To get him to stop, Robert began to shout out the curses. His abuser seemed to get more and more animated and excited. Later that day, Robert was found in the outhouse, also nearly frozen. By then, the town and the newspapers had gotten wind of the story about the boy that was going around abusing and torturing younger boys. A $500 reward was posted for any information leading to his capture. The papers alternately called him the demon and the inhuman scamp, but he would be more commonly known by the charming moniker, the boy torturer. A Boston Globe article dated July 28, 1872, detailed the boy torturer's deeds. Some details were embellished, perhaps to make a more colorful story. It said he was a big, oversized boy with a massive head, long and sharp fingernails, and red hair and a red beard. The boys were so traumatized by their ordeal that they could give very few details about him other than he was a bigger boy. Bigger than them, certainly, but that didn't necessarily mean he was oversized. But they must have been very traumatized because their attacker, Jesse Pomeroy, had at least one very distinctive feature. He had a cloudy or milky film over one eye. He was often teased and bullied by other children because of it, some reports also state that he possessed a hair lip, but this is debatable. Jesse's mother and father had a problematic marriage from the start. She was only 17 when she married Jesse's father, Thomas, who was five years her senior, and by her account, he was a vicious drunk who could not hold a job. He would often turn violently on his wife and his two sons, but especially seemed to take his anger out on Jesse. It is reported that Jesse was never an easy child and was often rebellious. So this may have spurred his father's rage, or maybe he was just an easy target. In the summer of 1872, Jesse's father had become angry with him, and Jesse ran out of the house to escape him. Thomas ran after him, and in front of the neighbors, grabbed him violently, dragging him back home through the streets. Once at home, his father made Jesse strip off his clothes and then began lashing him with a leather belt. Jesse later recounted how when he was only eight years old, his father had taken him to an abandoned shed where he'd made him strip and horsewhipped him as a punishment for some misdeed. It would be speculated later on that this was where Jesse got his ideas for torture and was taking his anger about his own abuse out on smaller, more defenseless boys. After this latest incident, however, his mother Ruth Ann returned home and when she saw Jesse cowering in the corner, bruised from the latest beating, she threatened her husband with a knife and ran him out of the house. In the 1870s, it was almost unheard of to seek a divorce. But Ruthann was determined to be rid of her abusive, worthless husband and filed the paperwork. She then moved her and her two boys a couple of miles away to South Boston to start a new life. As mentioned earlier, Jesse had problems with the other children. Ruthann would always defend Jesse, saying that the other children teased him and caused him to act out, His teachers, however, reported that he tried almost not at all to get along with his peers and continued to be a constant distraction in class. Instead of attending to his lessons, he would make faces and rude comments to the other children. He also seemed to be enamored of dime novels and would bring them to class and read them incessantly instead of paying attention in class. These dime novels were not meant for children, as they often contained violent and even sexual content. Most were salacious tales about criminals being pursued by detectives, war stories, and the like. While Ruth Ruthann would hear nothing against Jesse, even when teachers deemed him unmanageable and advised her to remove him from the primary school altogether, even she would admit that there were some disturbing incidents. Ruth Ann had considered getting some canaries to brighten up her kitchen in her new South Boston home, but thought better of it when she remembered that, in the past, she had come home to find a couple of birds she'd kept as pets, with their heads twisted off. Jesse didn't seem to be at all concerned about the fact that he'd killed the birds for no particular reason. There was also a neighbor who, when a kitten went missing, immediately suspected Jesse. She asked Ruth Ann to question him, and when she finally located him, he was carrying a knife in one hand and the dead kitten in the other. Again, he showed absolutely no emotion when confronted with this awful act. While it was unknown in the 1870s, it is today pretty common knowledge that one predictor of future violence, including possible homicidal acts, includes cruelty towards animals when young. We can definitely say that Jesse ticked off this box. Ruth Ann, Jesse, and his older brother Charles moved into South Boston on August 2nd. On August 17th, George Pratt, age 7, was found by the beach in South Boston. He, as the other boys, had been stripped and beaten, but Jesse's attacks were getting more vicious. He stabbed a sewing needle several times into the boy and bit his cheek and buttocks. A month later, Jesse kidnapped a six-year-old boy, Henry Austin. This time, in addition to the usual stripping and beating, he also stabbed his victim with a knife several times. Soon after, he would also attack five-year-old Robert Gould. Robert would recall that his attacker had a funny eye, white as marbles. Finally, in September 1872, railroad workers in South Boston discovered a naked five-year-old tied to a telephone post in the railroad yard. Joseph Kennedy had been lured to a boathouse, stripped and beaten. It is possible that Jesse had planned to kill at least the last two boys he'd attacked, but he had run off fearing he might be discovered. He was nearly discovered by the railroad workers, and the boy reports that Jesse had come close to slitting his throat before he was scared off. Joseph also recalled that his attacker had a queer eye and further described him as having a massive head, a heavy jawline, a downturned mouth, and a peculiar white eye. The police officer who questioned Joseph decided to try and find the demon by taking the boy a few days later to the school to search each classroom. They actually walked into a classroom where Jesse was present, but when Jesse saw the police officer, he ducked his head down. The boy did not see him, and they walked out. Strangely, later that day, after school, Jesse passed the police station and decided, out of curiosity, to go inside. Unfortunately for him, the first people he encountered were Joseph with the police officer who was searching for him. The boy immediately pointed him out as his attacker, and he was swiftly arrested. The police and the public were shocked to discover that the demon that they had feared for the better part of a year was merely a boy himself. Jesse was 12 years old at the time of his arrest, 4 foot 9 inches tall, weighing 90 pounds. Officers were equally surprised that Jesse seemed to show zero remorse, guilt, or fear, but very quickly confessed to his crimes on September 21, 1872. The boy torturer was quickly brought before a judge and sentenced. He was remanded to the state reform school for boys for the term of his minority, which would be six years. He was put to work braiding chairs in the reformatory, but quickly grew bored of that and complained about pains in his eyes and in his head. The administrators decided that it was negatively affecting his eyesight, so they gave him a new position. In what can only be called a very bad move, Jesse was assigned to supervise the much younger boys. Corporal punishment was frequently applied to the school's wards and Jesse was fascinated by the entire process. He studied the instruments used to inflict punishment with great interest and would bribe the children who returned from punishment to recount the details to him. How many times were they whipped? Did they bleed? How painful was it? And other such questions. But parents in the Boston area who had been so afraid for their children's safety breathed a sigh of relief that the demon was securely locked away. Unfortunately, that would soon change. Ruth Ann was still defending her son Jesse as a misunderstood and bullied boy who only acted out due to the mistreatment he received from the other children. She was not popular in the neighborhood and was barely making ends meet. Her older son Charles had opened up a newsstand across the street from their apartment and Ruth Ann had started a small dressmaking shop in the back of the store. In January 1874, Ruth Ann was visited by Gardner Tufts, who worked for the State Board of Charities. He'd come to do a routine visit, Tufts' heart went out to Ruth Ann, who seemed like a hard-working woman, and it was obvious she loved and missed her younger son. When he made a report to the board, he pled Mrs. Pomeroy's case, that she had been married to an abusive man who had beaten Jesse, that she was divorced and struggling financially, and how her older son could use Jesse's help with the family business. Tufts believed that being back in this home environment with his family would be more beneficial to Jesse's reform than a state school could provide. The board sent the report to the Westboro State Reform School, and surprisingly, the officials agreed and a release date was set for Jesse. In February, Jesse returned to South Boston without the knowledge of the community or even the Boston police chief. Jesse had only served two years of his six-year sentence. On March 18, 1873, 10-year-old Mary Curran asked her mother for permission to visit a corner store to purchase a school notebook. Her mother consented, telling her to come right back. When Mary hadn't returned in over an hour, her mother went out looking for her. She found out that the first store she had stopped in did not have the notebook she was looking for, so she continued down the block in search of one. A neighbor reported that she had last seen Mary entering the Pomeroy shop. Days went by, and even though a poster was distributed with a $500 reward for information and searches were conducted, Mary was not found. On April 23rd, about five weeks after Mary went missing, two young boys searching for clams on the beach discovered a body. They ran to find help and encountered a police officer and frantically led him to their gruesome discovery. They had found the body of a very young boy, nude, lying on his back with several stab wounds and slashes to his body. His body also had been burned. The boy would be identified as four-year-old Horace Millen, who had begged his mother that morning for a few coins to go down to the corner bakery to buy a sweet bun. She had relented, and when he hadn't returned a few minutes later, she had went out looking for him. She became more frantic as the minutes ticked by. When the body was discovered on the beach, it was nearly 5 p.m. Edward Savage, chief of the Boston Police Department, couldn't help but notice a similarity to the crimes of the convicted boy torturer, he mentions as such to the local police detective, stating that it seemed similar to crimes committed by, quote, a young scoundrel we've got in the reformatory. The detective informed him that if it was Pomeroy he was referring to, he was no longer in the reformatory. The chief quickly telegraphed the district where the Pomeroys lived and was informed that Jesse had been released two months prior and lived with his mother on Broadway Street in South Boston. The Boston Globe also reported the similarities of previous attacks to the dead boy on the beach and began accusing Jesse of the crime. While the story was mere speculation, it served to inform the public that Jesse was free and living in South Boston once again. The investigation began, and people who were questioned about that day remembered seeing Horace with a much bigger boy. Jesse was now 14 years old. A woman reported seeing Horace near the bakery with the boy who led him away by the hand and towards the beach. Detectives arrived at Jesse Pomeroy's home that evening. He was still dressed as if he had just arrived home. He had on a cap that fit the description witnesses had seen the boy with Horace wearing. They took him into the station for questioning. The first thing they noticed was several scratches on his face and neck. His clothes were wet and had a red stain that looked as if it had tried to be washed off. They asked him to take off his boots and noticed mud caked on the bottoms that it would be determined matched the soil near the marsh where Horace was found. Jesse had maintained his composure and his innocence throughout the questioning. At one point, detectives had returned to Ruth Ann's home to look for the vest Jesse had been wearing. They returned with it, and in the pocket found a knife. The detective told Jesse that they had evidence against him that would be damaging and asked him to confess. At first, he still denied everything. But when the detective asked him if perhaps he had killed that boy and not known it, Jesse replied, I don't know. I might. I guess I did. He then said he was sorry and that he did not want his mother to know what he did. Jesse then commented how all the police officers wanted to be the ones to collect the reward. The detective was surprised to hear this because there was no reward being offered for Horace's killer. He said so to Jesse, and Jesse responded, There's a reward for the girl. Ruth Ann Pomeroy had vacated the rented shop on March 31st. She was no longer earning enough money with her shop to pay the rent. In June, a local grocer purchased the building that included the former newsstand slash dressmaker shop to expand his business. Neighbors had been complaining of a foul odor coming from the building, and now in June, the hot weather seemed to be intensifying the problem. Having noticed a garbage heap in the cellar of the building, the new owner hired workmen to go down and clean it out. As they opened the cellar door, the smell was ferocious. Covering their noses and mouths, they commenced shoveling through the garbage and ash heap when they came upon a horrifying discovery. They found a decomposed body with scraps of clothing still attached. The clothing suggested that it was a female body that was dressed for cold weather. The authorities were contacted and an investigation was launched. It was soon discovered that this was the body of young Mary Curran who had gone missing three months earlier. An autopsy on the remains revealed stab wounds, broken bones, and a fractured skull. The skull fracture was so serious, it was speculated that she may have been killed by a blow to the head. The age of the victim and the location where the body was discovered, in the cellar of Jesse Pomeroy's family business, sent detectives to question Jesse, who was in jail awaiting trial for the murder of Horace Mullen. At first, he denied any knowledge of the murder until he was confronted with the fact that since the body was discovered in his mother's former residence, she could be charged as an accessory to murder. He then confessed to killing Mary. The prevailing belief was that Jesse Pomeroy must be mentally ill. How could a child inflict such horrible acts on innocent children unless he was insane? Others, though, said Jesse suffered from what was then called moral depravity. In today's terms, he'd be called a sociopath or a person who lacks a conscience and regard for the moral or legal standards of society. Some, including Ruth Ann Pomeroy and Jesse himself, would deflect blame away from his deeds by citing his own abuse at the hands of his father, his penchant for gory reading materials, and its taunting by the other children. This may all be true, but it doesn't take into account that his brother, who grew up in the same house with the same father, became a normal, hard-working, law-abiding citizen. Nor, while there were always children singled out and teased and taunted by classmates, almost none become murderers. Perhaps Jesse was born without a conscience, or perhaps some perfect storm of factors caused him to act out violently. It will probably never be known. While some still favored leniency for Jesse due to his age, most agreed that he was a dangerous monster who should never roam free again. Many were afraid if he were sentenced to the penitentiary, he would be released again to inflict more harm onto society. A trial was held on December 9th and 10th, 1874, with the Commonwealth of Massachusetts arguing for a verdict of murder in the first degree. He was pronounced guilty on December 10th with a recommendation for the death penalty. Pomeroy's attorney filed an exception that was ultimately overturned, and he was sentenced to death by hanging in February 1875. Jesse was 16 years, 9 months old at the time of the verdict. But while the date for his execution was set, the governor refused to sign the death warrant. A vote to commute the sentence to life was put before the council several times. Twice the sentence was upheld, but the governor still refused to give the go-ahead. Finally, in August 1876, a third vote was held and Jesse's sentence was commuted to life in prison in solitary confinement. He was transferred to the Charlestown State Prison to begin his forever sentence. Jesse remained active all of his days behind bars. He studied languages and law books, wrote poetry and a memoir, and also made several attempts to escape. He was caught nine or ten times with handmade tools, including a drill he planned to use to drill through the bars of his cell. During one failed escape in 1914, he lost an eye when he attempted to redirect a gas pipe to blow out the wall of his cell. In 1917, his sentence was commuted once again, allowing him out of solitary confinement and giving him privileges of any other life prisoner, including being allowed to mingle with the other inmates and partake in activities. He had spent over 40 years in solitary confinement. At first, he refused, saying the only thing he would accept was a full pardon. But eventually, he would adjust his attitude and live in the general prison population. In 1929, at the age of 70, Jesse was elderly and in poor health. He was transferred to the Bridgewater State Hospital for the Criminally Insane. The following year, he attempted one last escape. He was unsuccessful. Jesse Harding Pomeroy died on September 29, 1932, at the Bridgewater State Hospital. He was 72. So why is Jesse considered America's youngest serial killer and not just the youngest murderer? Although he was convicted of only two murders, those of Horace Millen and Mary Curran, it was believed that if he had not been scared off, his plan was to kill at least two or three of the last boys he tortured before being sent away to the reform school. But beyond that, Jesse at one time, while incarcerated, claimed to have murdered 27 others. That number, however, has not been validated. Investigators did, however, find the remains of 12 other people around the area near his home. So while the facts of Jesse's crimes may still be debated to this day, many have concluded that he was an unrepentant killer who, without a doubt, would have continued to kill without mercy, motive, or remorse. And that MO marks a true serial killer. If you'd like to learn more about Jesse Pomeroy and his crimes, I'd like to recommend the following books. The Wilderness of Ruin, A Tale of Madness, Fire, and the Hunt for America's Youngest Serial Killer by Roseanne Montillo. The Shocking True Story of America's Youngest Serial Killer by Harold Schechter. You may also want to search out the autobiography written by Jesse Pomeroy himself in 1875. You can find it online as it was published as a series of articles in the Boston Sunday Times in that year. In it, he shows no remorse or even curiosity about his crimes and alternately denies them and then says, but if I did them, it was because I was insane. A fascinating, if extremely self-serving read. I will provide links on the show page. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. To give feedback or suggest show topics, you can find me on Facebook at Once Upon a Crime Pod and on Twitter at Upon a Crime. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes or Stitcher and rate and comment if you like it. Until next time, be good to one another.